Hello, welcome to the Body, Mind, Spirit podcast, the podcast for the Idea Crucible, an online multimedia magazine for public and practitioners alike. My name is Eric Moya, and I'll be your host. Please check us out at the full Idea Crucible site at www.theideacrucible.com. There you can find articles, blogs, webinars, and practitioner supervision groups, all based around body, mind, spirit integration. Today, we're chatting with Heather Wahanek, and cheerfully enough, our topic is death and dying. Heather is a career nurse and therapist who has extensive experience with death and dying. I first met Heather about eight years ago in a continuing education course we took together on the topic of craniosacral therapy and death and dying. Since that time, I have heard Heather talk about her experiences in the field many times and have been impressed with her combination of impressive clinical skill and knowledge as well as her ability to maintain a sense of transpersonal wonder and appreciation for what's probably this most critical of biological processes that we call death. Heather, really glad to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Eric. It's good to be here. And again, I, it's been no, it's been a little bit of a journey to arrange this uh, conversation, and so I'm really happy to, to have us both here talking about it. Uh, would you mind just kind of painting a little bit of a picture of, of what it is that you do exactly? I'm an RN case manager. I feel like I co-passenger in someone's journey to their last days and dying. They're the driver of the bus. I'm just in there beside them, supporting them and their loved ones. And that's what I do. I have lots of tools in my toolkit from medicine to uh, presence, I'd say, is the biggest one. But that's what I do. I walk beside people. Nice. I love the way that you, you characterize that. And I like the way that you describe your tools as being everything from medicine to presence. Definitely want to hear you talk about the presence aspects a little bit later. Do you mind just talking about some of the tools in your toolbox from the medical side, please? Well, it's rather interesting that for all the processes that disease processes that could lead someone to the end of their life, our toolkit is primarily five medications, no matter what somebody's disease process is. And we have that comfort kit, as we call it, in every home. And that's the basis of, that's my right hand <laughs> in, in managing symptoms if somebody's uncomfortable as their body is declining. What are those medications, if you don't mind me asking? Well, first of all, most people are most afraid of pain, and pain can be a part of what happens depending on uh, what is happening in somebody's body. So, of course, we have morphine. Sometimes people can get anxious or agitated. So we have three medications for that because your body chemistry changes, and so your mind coherence can change, and that can be scary for people. So we have a benzodiazepine, we have lorazepam, we have um, a Haldol to help with hallucinations if they're scary, and we have more of a sedative, phenobarbital, if somebody really needs relief by falling asleep more easily for a little while. And our last medication is hyoscyamine, which is for ex excess secretions. When somebody is in their coma, sometimes the, they get a little bit moist sounding, like they're snoring when they're breathing, and it can help 
stride that up a little bit. So really just kind of a process of helping someone be as comfortable as possible as their life comes to an end. Exactly. So you would be someone who's basically with someone really at the very end. Oh, I have patients who've been on hospice for over a year because they're not dying as fast as predicted. Within the scope of practice under Medicare guidelines, every disease has the parameters for which they qualify for hospice benefits. And the definition is two physicians saying, give six months or less to live. Well, the body is dynamic and unpredictable. <laughs> so I often have people much longer than three or four months. Between my average is between two months and six months. And then there's the outliers. Like right now I have someone I've had on for about a year. Sometimes people come on to hospice and I'll barely meet them and then they're, they're off. They've made it. They transition the inner hospice right in their last days of life. So it's quite variable. I love that phrase that you just said, that the body is dynamic and unpredictable. Could you just talk a bit more about that, please? I'm always surprised in this work and in reverence and awe for how um, the dying process is and the living into someone's dying is going to unfold. It always surprises me. I have no crystal ball and everybody is very unique. And sometimes I have seen instances where all I can say is the spirit is animating this body far beyond any physiological rules that I know about. <laughs> it's the spirit that's making them still able to make contact and express themselves because if I look at them and their biology it makes no sense. <laughs> Could you give some examples of, of what you're talking about? I'm talking about like I had a lovely woman that I was visiting and I stopped taking her blood pressure because she was answering the door with blood pressure 80 over 40 and she had edema from her feet all the way to her hips and she had a radiant smile and would give me a hug and the need to lay back down on the couch for our visit. But that sort of strength that animated her body and I couldn't fathom how she was able to stand up and not faint. And she did that after the next week I took it, it was in the 70s over 40s. And I'm like, this is making your nurse's blood pressure go up because I don't understand that. So this is not an informational number that we need to be checking right anymore <laughs> because she could turn only... a conversation and she dozed off. And, and that was predictable for me, somebody laying on the couch and falling asleep and how she looked very pale and swollen and yet she could walk me to the door and answer the door for me for way beyond what I thought was humanly possible. For those of us, for those listeners who might be listening who really don't have a medical background, so what you're saying, if somebody has a blood pressure of 70 over 40, they really shouldn't be able to walk around and have that kind of energy. No, like in the ICU of 70 over 40, we're giving you tons of medicines to get that blood pressure up to per perfuse your whole body. Like a normal, like healthy athlete, fabulous blood pressure is like 100 over 60. It's like normal, really good blood pressure. Some athletes will be 90 over 50s, but most of us are 120s over 70s, 140s over 80s. Like, you know... 
Not, not half of that. Or recently I had a woman who was 15 days in her coma. 15 days. This is after she'd not eaten and drink it, drank for, oh, probably three days. It took her about three days. She just kind of went into her coma really quickly, non-rousable, minimal medications, but was 15 days sleeping. I've never seen 15 days. 10 days was my most I'd seen. She was my record breaker. 15 days. And what was that? And the night, the day, the night before she died, the next day, they'd said her out, her out of town daughter. They, everyone said that she was waiting to see her because how do we know how mystery is unfolding? But the mystery of that was that night the daughter had a dream with her mom and they had this huge conversation. The mom told her how much she loved her, told her she was going to be fine and she felt a big hug from her mom. And she cried in the dream, and she woke up, and her mom died the next morning. After 15 days. That was on night 14. Wow. <laughs> so how does that happen? That's the spirit, right? That's what I mean by the spirit animating the body. Yeah, so how do you, how do you make sense of that? I don't. I think there are things that are beyond my rational left brain logical mind. And that's what your whole podcast is about, right? What is this matrix of body, mind, spirit? Exactly. What is this integration? What what is there's mystery. There's unknowable in the midst of all of this. Well and it kinda sounds like even after doing what you do for so long that you manage to remain in contact with the mystery of it all. Or even it enhances your appreciation of it. A completely you can never get bored when death is your co-pilot. <laughs> you can never get bored when death is your co-pilot. No, it's just not. It's it's a roller coaster ride. So There's how, some thrills and chills. I'm sure. So how did you how did you end up in this field? How did you end up in this profession? Well, I've been a nurse for 19 years, and I started out with midwives and helping babies come into the world, and then I had my own kids and didn't want to stay up at night. I knew how to assist in C-sections, and I decided, oh, I could work in the operating room. I did that for 10 years, had some of my own health issues, and met a visceral manual therapist. And I was at a point where some surgeons were offering to help me with my abdominal pain and for a hiatal hernia, and I saw a manual therapist and cried and he did some crazy light touching over my clothes and I don't know it got better and I was like what the hell is that that makes no sense to me <laughs> so I had to uh, look into manual therapy and what is what is touch therapy and the modalities that manual therapist told me not to start with visceral but to start with cranial sacral therapy so I studied that for five years from beginning to advance too, and you know, it's a journey. And then while in cranial sacral therapy, we had that great class together with Death and Dine and Don Ash, and I got a couple of patients who were dying, their children hired me, and I was like, oh my God, this is where I could integrate body work and what I've learned in cranial sacral therapy and being a nurse. So I certainly couldn't do that in the operating room. <laughs> no room for woo-woo in the operating room. <laughs> so how do you manage to integrate that? Integrate the, integrate the experience of touch and, and therapeutic touch into the death and dying process? Well, I'd say it's still my growing edge. The role of a nurse and especially a case manager is very defined and 
sometimes integrating touch is not uh, modality based, although I have had the opportunity to share cranial sacral therapy with some of my patients, mini sessions, 15 minute sessions, but I have a, am allotted about an hour and to be with people unless it's some sort of unmanageable symptoms and then I can be there all day. But my schedule is such that I'm supposed to see four patients in a day that I, and then I drive to their homes. So there's driving and charting. So I've made touch where the person is comfortable. Sometimes someone only wants as much touch as having their vitals taken. Sometimes someone will allow me to explore what would help them feel good with touch. Of course, closed. You know, I'm not an aide. I don't do personal care. I don't have that venue of being that close to their body. So we've been spending a little bit of time talking about your role with the person who's dying. I'm curious also, because there's the family. How do you interact with the family? How, because I'm sure that's part of it. It's like it's almost like there are three parts to this, right? You have the medical side, you have the person who's dying, and then you have the loved ones who might be part of the process. What thoughts and considerations do you have as you kind of navigate that, that complexity? I'm very thankful we have a social work team. <laughs> Um, some of the family dynamics I feel unprepared for as far as my medical and massage training is not having gone to social work school or marriage and family therapy school. So all I have is presence and being able to sit in the room with people and create dialogue. If it needs more than that, I call in my team members. We have chaplain and we have our social work team. For most situations, it's about creating relationship and helping the relationship of the loved ones and maybe the paid caregivers, everybody who's on the team, feeling like they're on a on the team and helping them let their loved one be the driver of the boat, be in the driver's seat of that bus, whether from everything, from how much they want to eat to what they want to eat, to if they want to go outside, you know, all of the preferences helping the patient be the leader, which in some situations, in, especially in a medical context, sometimes that's brand new for someone to be feel that empowered. No, I don't want to take that medicine. <laughs> No, I don't want to eat. No, I, I don't want to use that piece of safety equipment. We really base our hospice philosophy on teaching people to advocate for themselves and understanding how we can help them meet their needs. Nice. But it's not, it's not prescriptive in the same way as other medical experiences are. Yeah, I can, and I can really imagine that resonating well with your with, with your values on that one. It does. And I just, you know, as I listen to you talk, I just really appreciate this picture that you're kind of painting of, uh, of empowerment, of really kind of, that one of the main focuses is helping the person who's dying be fully empowered and, and kind of running the show and kind of helping maybe redirect other people's expectations to really put that person front and center. Is that an accurate understanding? It is. And that creates conflict. It creates conflict in family systems. Yeah. Because maybe that, maybe that, it might be easier if that person has always been in charge. But if that person has always not been in charge, it's a different power structure. Or if a loved one might be so caretaking, they're sure they know what's best for the other person. 
you know, it creates a lot of dynamics. I, I can even imagine. Empowerment. <laughs> <laughs> I can even imagine that that might be challenging for some medical staff who are used to being in charge too. Is that an unfair? Yeah, I'm, 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 no, I think, I, I think that those edges can be hard. I know what's best for you. Do this. <laughs> Right. You know, right. being able to tell somebody what to do is it certainly feels like an easier place for some people to be in. The other thing I'm really appreciating about this kind of this picture that you're painting is the is the is the importance of community. You know, I remember when I was going through school having a mentor of mine basically say that good decisions Good decisions come from community and bad decisions come from isolation. It really sounds like part of what you're doing is just not having any one person carry the whole show, but that it's all about supporting the team approach. Oh, yes. I am so grateful that I feel close to my team. And I feel like we we try to build community around the person. Even if they are very isolated, we try to bring in our volunteer, bring in our aides, work with the people the person has in their life and bring them in closer if that's possible. I, I really value the community and how we can hold this, hold this person in an envelope of caring. Well, this concludes part one of my interview with Heather. I hope you enjoyed the look into the body-mind-spirit world of death and dying from an RN case manager's point of view. Please check out part two and conclusion of the interview with Heather on the Idea Crucible site at www.theideacrucible.com. And while you're there, browse around a bit and take a look at all the other stuff we have to offer, especially if you are a therapist with a value towards body-mind-spirit integration. And if you or you know of someone who might have an interesting perspective or voice or experience on body-mind-spirit, please let us know. We want to hear from you. We're always looking for new contributors to the emerging dialogues on body-mind-spirit. As always, thank you for your time and attention and for wanting to be a more integrated person today and every day.